Hello, everyone. Um, we are the Mosley Writers Group. We are we normally do this panel at the Virginia Festival of the Book, um, but this year, unfortunately, the festival, as well as many many other events, have been canceled due to coronavirus. Um, but so we're doing this virtually. I swear we are all very far apart. <laughs> no one is breathing on anyone else. We got these all by email, sanitized. Um, so. Uh, but we wanted to share our comments because we know there are people out there who are managing to get some writing done. I don't know if anyone on the call is. Um, and we'd like to give them some encouragement. This is all about encouraging people and helping them make their writing better, helping them communicate with people. None of us are um, publishing professionals, really. Um, we are writers, first and foremost, um, although some of us do editing. Um, and we teach. So we have a lot of years of experience and um, people have gotten a lot of the panel, which is why we are offering it virtually. Um, so I just wanted to start by introducing everyone on the call since you can't see us. Um, and then um, I'm going to turn it over to Deb to talk a little bit about Mosley writers and critique groups. And then we're going to just jump in and go in order of um, the uh, submissions that we received this year. And we received 14. Um, normally we are about 20, right, Deb? 20 about, we're up to 30, 32, yeah. usually. And yeah. we usually take them at the door, which is so sad. We can't do that this year. But um, we hope to be back next year in person, um, disease-free, and just um, and get lots more. Um, so, we, you know, if you're in the Charlottesville area or coming to the festival, you know, please submit next year, and there'll be info for that. So um, I'm Meredith Cole. Um, I um, started my career as a screenwriter and filmmaker, so I often approach um, approach the, um, the submissions in that way. Um, I also am a mystery writer. My book, um, Post for Murder, um, was nominated for an Agatha Award for Best First Mystery, um, and my short stories have appeared in anthologies um, and magazines, and I teach writing occasionally at Writer House. Also, Jody Hobbs, Hessler is on the line. She teaches, <laughs> she teaches at Writer House in Charlottesville, and her work um, appears or is forthcoming in North American Reviews, Open Space Craft, Pithead Chapel, The Rumpus, and elsewhere. Um, Betty Joyce Nash is also on the line. She, she is a journalist and short story writer, and she co-edited a book of literary gun stories called Lock and Load, Armed Fiction, from University of New Mexico Press in 2017. North Dakota Quarterly, um, those are those are your short stories have been in. North Dakota Quarterly, Broad River, I hope I'm gonna do better on the submissions. Broad <laughs> River Review, Across the Margin, and Siva Weekly, among others. They published her fiction. In 2015, she won the F. Scott Fitzgerald Prize. And her fiction has been recognized with fellowships from the McDowell Colony uh, and others. Also, Deb Prom is on the line. Her hello. Oh, <laughs> hello. Her award-winning fiction has appeared in the Virginia Quarterly Review, Across the Margin, and other publications. Her audiobook, First Kiss and Other Cautionary Tales, is a collection of essays which have aired on NPR member stations and have appeared in the Washington Post and many other publications. She's written on writing for Writer Magazine, The Writer's Handbook, and the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators Magazine. She also teaches at Writer House. Um, 
So Deb, tell us a little bit about how the Mosley writers went from a writing group to doing this um, first hundred words critique at the Festival of the Book. Um, the Mosley group, uh, critique group, started a little over 20 years ago. And um, even uh, our, in our first year of existence, we participated in the Festival of the Book. For the first maybe nine years, what we would do is um, have a panel and talk about a particular topic. Um, then about 10 years ago, um, I think it was Jennifer Elfrin and, and Fran Slayton came up with the idea of inviting writers to submit 100 words and uh, have our panel discuss them. And it's been a great place for um, writers and wannabe writers to gather and listen to uh, for people's uh, critique of their work. So that's how we started. And I'm really excited to be here today. I'm so glad, Meredith, that you had this idea. Well, you know, it just is such a shame. And um, I just, I'm going to actually be doing podcasts with my two other panels um, that were supposed to happen. And, and part of it is I read their books. I was super excited to meet them. And, um, and I'm hoping that we can encourage people to buy books from independent bookstores, which are really struggling, um, especially our local um, the New Dominion, who had bought all these books in preparation for the festival. Um, and also um, support the festival of the book. You know, we can now see how much we miss it. <laughs> so hopefully we can see how much we value it as well. Um, Canceling is expensive. So. so I just got an email this morning that Over the Moon is closing for, um, not for good, but for the foreseeable future. And so another great independent bookstore located in Crozet. Oh, that's too bad. The gift, gift certificates are a good idea for those bookstores. So. Yeah. Yeah, and if and you're in, if you're in the Charlottesville area, I think they're delivering or letting you pick up um, books from New Dominion. So, okay, well, let's get started um, with our first submission. These are completely anonymous, um, and this is how we do it at the festival as well. We read it, we um, critique it, we don't mention who gave it, um, and in some cases, I've edited slightly because they gave us way more than 100 words. In some cases, I've thrown in a couple extra words, <laughs> over 100, <laughs> if, it, if they needed to finish the sentence. Okay, the first one. He stood over her body at the bottom of the cellar stairs. She was a lovely woman, even dead. Her chestnut brown hair spread across the cold earthen floor, her violet eyes open and staring up at the ceiling. The blood had just started pooling beneath her. He couldn't take his eyes off her low-cut violet floral dress. Regretting what he had done, he scooped her up into his arms, walked into the storage room, and laid her carefully on the old stuffed sofa in the corner. He heard the loud clanging of the church bell above him mark the three o'clock hour. I like to... this a lot. Uh, the point of view is good. We can see the entire scene through the character's eyes. I would change uh, this. I would make the second, the third sentence into a couple sentences. I would start her violet eyes still open, stared upward toward the ceiling. And then the sentence that is blood started pooling. You never have to do that. You just have blood pooled beneath her. That was Deb, by the way. Yep. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's good, like keeping the verbs active. I also wondered um, 
if the sofa that he took her to might have had a connection to who these two people are. It's okay for me in the opening that we don't know who those two people are, but um, but if the sofa was somehow connected to them, it would make it even more uh, of a hot spot um, in the story. We could immediately get a little bit more investment emotionally. One thing that I really liked about this opening was the line, he couldn't take his eyes off her low-cut violet floral dress because that tells us so much about the character. Um, yeah, it just, that detail, the fact that he's still looking at her low-cut dress. Yeah, I'm, I think I've, I've got a couple things going on here. Um, I feel like it's being super mysterious, like are we in the church or not? Um, and I'm not sure why we're being mysterious about where we are, uh, if we are in a church. Um, so I, so there's a couple things I just thought, and then I also thought, okay, her eyes are violet, her dress is violet. You, if that's on purpose, that's fine. Um, but sometimes you, that repetition feels a little like, are there other colors? Um, <laughs> and then you're right. When you mention something very um, specific, like the old stuffed sofa, we get such a good visual out of that but you want to maybe pull back from that if it's not really relevant. Right. I also, I also, there, there's a lot of really, really good detail, a lot of concrete detail in this. And like um, Meredith was saying, we could use just a few more contextualizing details there. Like is, I, 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 it wasn't until you just said that Meredith that I realized the church bell above him, I had kind of skipped over those two words and had it in my mind in the distance. Um, because I wasn't uh, clearly set in the church yet. Um, but I, I, I did have a, a question about that he couldn't take his eyes off her low-cut floral dress. I, I wondered in that moment, it, it, to, to me, I wanted the, um, what, one of the things I recommend in, in rewriting scenes is kind of putting, putting yourself inside the character and looking out of their eyes. And is that the detail he would go to right then? Um, we're, we're still unclear on a lot of the circumstances, which is okay, but if he has just accidentally killed this woman, and if he loves her, and he's staring at her cleavage, I'm not sure what that does tell me about him, and I'm not sure what that, that what the writer wants me to feel at that point. Um, it, 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 I couldn't tell if that was in if that was a way of distancing the, the narrator from the person or if it was supposed to be showing me what she meant to him. I think it could go either way. Yeah, I mean, so I, I come from the thriller mystery genre, so I would say, like, I'm immediately jumping to a bunch of conclusions here, which I'm hoping in the next, you know, several paragraphs or pages, the author will really crystallize for me. Like, I'm imagining it's a priest and it's a sexual um, killing, you know, it seemed like, you know, with the whole the low cut dress, you know, he regrets doing it. So they have a relationship. It's, you know, I, I'm, I'm going all those places. And, and I think, yeah, it's sometimes it's hard in the first hundred words to clarify all those things. But I think it's interesting. So I think it's a good start. Did anyone want to add anything else? Okay. Um, should we just go to the next one then? That's good. The cold wind whipped the fabric of the tent, desperate to get in. 
The tent was made to block the elements, but it made no difference to Harlow's. As an ire, he could not even feel the cold. Well, he could feel it. He did. He loved it. Harlos was part of a group called the Hope Flames, who were dedicated to bringing back the phoenixes. Hundreds of years ago, griffins attacked phoenixes out of spite. Most phoenixes could not survive one, much less two, griffin attacks. And so they faded into history, known by some as only myths. Um, I like this a lot. I like the content. This is Debbie talking. I like the content of it. Um, but I, I think this person would be best served if they started from Harless's point of view and saw and felt everything through the scene in, in Harless's eyes. Right now, we it's uh, you were a little bit removed from the scene. And here's an example of made, seeing it through Harless's eyes. Uh, Harless listened to the icy wind whip against his tent as an ire, frigid temp- te- temperatures did not affect him. He loved or maybe craved, I don't know, the sensation of bitter cold. I'm not saying write it exactly like this, but I'm saying you would grab the reader more if you saw and felt everything through Harlow's. I agree with, with that. Um, I, I felt like uh, that was true also in the second paragraph where we start to indicate uh, the background of this world that's being built for us um, in the way that the second paragraph is right now. And this is Jody speaking. The way that the second paragraph is right now, we're just delivered some information about the world rather than having Harlos relay it. And I thought that there was a way to um, to to reframe it so that you're delivering it through the experience of the character. Absolutely, um, I think that um, some of the ways you can um, deliver that kind of background information is by having someone in a scene that doesn't know it. Um, and that's one way without sort of delivering a bunch of like, you know, stuff. So if you if you added another character there, they could say, you know, who are you? And we're part of the hope flames, you know, because you couldn't you wouldn't normally say that in a in a sort of just with someone who already knows um, or, um, you know, what happened to all the I mean I don't know I'm just saying that there's ways that you can you can introduce some of that information in conversation but all of it should be moved later we first really want to care about Harlos and that's and by being in his space being in his head and, and seeing things from his point of view we're going to start caring about him through his emotions yeah I um I liked the um the chilly mood that was established by the wind and it's also creepy and that this idea i'm intrigued with this idea that he couldn't feel the cold but he could feel it and he and he loved it so all that ambiguity was um it was not really off-putting but it did make me wonder make me wonder if he was unreliable or if it was just a special property of a hope flame etc so all of that i think is fine i i can i'm a reader who doesn't mind ambiguity in the first couple of paragraphs but yeah, it looks like a, a pretty interesting world. That's it. That's it. That's all you got. Well, I think, um, yeah, I think it's an interesting start. I think um, fantasy world building is always really challenging. And um, and I would just, I hope, you know, I hope this person loves to read it and reads a lot of it and just sees how, you know, some of the really, um, you know, the masters, people have done it for years, do it so they can get some ideas um, on how you establish all that stuff. 
All right, so the next one, um, number three, with a click, the room woke. Thanks to a timer, coffee was already brewing, nearly done in fact. Eyeing his favorite coffee mug, Wade made a slow beeline toward the butcher block counter, heels and butt leading the way. His walk resembled that of a heron, with his knees bending backward with each stride. Over the past 28 years, Wade's joints adjusted to accommodate his unique deformity. No longer was there pain. No longer did his tendons feel strained to the point of snapping each time he extended his arms upward, away from his back. He could even lift them above his head, aft and stern. A master yogi could not compete with such flexibility. This is well written. Um, I love the first line, with a click, the room woke. And the second line is great too. And the description of a slow beeline is so, it's fascinating. Um, I like the last paragraph. Um, I can see it. The only, the only comment I have about this is I looked up how a heron walks and I, uh, you know, I Google imaged it and looked at a video and I still can't figure out how this person's moving. It didn't make sense to me. I, I would, um, agree with with Deb on that one. However, what I would say is if we dropped heels and butt leading the way and just let his walk resemble a heron, I wouldn't be trying to puzzle it out and I would just yeah. go with the flow. Yeah. So yeah. and I and I think that, you know, sometimes it comes down to pick the stronger descriptor. Um I would similarly leave off he could lift his hands above his head aft and stern. That one didn't do as much for me as the fact that he could move them without having the tendon snap and the master yogi couldn't compete with his flexibility. To me, um, I would just go in there and just, you know, keep the specifics, but when they get too specifics with bodily movements, sometimes it can throw the reader off. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that, that sometimes less is more and um, too much uh, explanation about the movement, even though it's obviously really important to the story, could can be distracting. And um, in general, I had the same reaction as um, Jody and Deb that um, the slow beeline was was interesting, and I, I pictured him aiming in a straight line, but really carefully. And yeah, everything seemed um, seemed good. I think I, I just had to read it a couple times to figure out what they were talking about, and I'm not. You know, and I and I usually say that's a bad thing with the first hundred words. So I think you're right. Taking out a few of those details will make it. Um, I think, it'll, yeah, I think it'll just make it flow a little better, and I think it'll make us understand it a little better. Yeah, I think there's a there's a point where where as writers we need to be able to picture it in that kind of explicit um, that explicit degree of of specificity, but we need to figure out how to describe it more succinctly than we know it so that we don't confuse the reader. Um, I just also wanted to say that we've got in this first hundred words, um, we, we have a main character who is suffering a deformity and, and you know, disabled characters are in short supply in literature today. So, um, so I think that's an interesting choice for this character. And I hope that his um, deformity is a driver in the whole story and not just an opening um, part of it. Very interesting. Yeah, that's a good observation. Yeah. Well, awesome. 
Well, let's move on to number four. Um, it was dusk as Rena carried the last silks to the cart, ready to haul home, head home from the merchant's festival. She heard the thundering hooves, a great crash, screaming. A quick glance showed armed riders fanning out to circle the festival field. With fear thrumming in her throat, Rena immediately dropped the silks and turned to the forest. Run, run, she urged herself. They said to flee into the dark wood if anything happened. Run, run, run. And so she ran into the darkness, heedless of the brambles that reached out to snag her ankles, her tunic. There's a lot in these opening lines that does a good job creating that sense of um, urgency and, and immediacy. Uh, I had a couple ideas where that could even be amped up a little bit, again, where we talked about with uh, another one of the stories, really digging into that person's point of view, get, get deeper into Rena, um, so that um, so that when, first of all, the silks are mentioned, we can say what they are in reference to that world, so that we're immediately in the world. Because my, my first reaction to silks was, I thought of jockeys. <laughs> so that, that threw me off just a little bit. Also, when when we hear they said to flee into the dark wood if anything happened, I thought it might be interesting if they were in that scene, saying it in that active moment, so that we could be with Rena a little bit more directly instead of in her head at that moment. I agree with Jody, um, and I also think I don't know. I don't like the word it because it doesn't really work for it for you. It doesn't do a lot of work for you. I'd love to. Start have that scene start strictly in, in Rena's perspective uh, and get rid of it and maybe start with at dusk and launch into something uh, after that. I love all the sounds, the thundering hooves, the crash, but I'd get rid of exclamation points. Um, and then I had one question. Does fear thrum in a person's throat? I feel like it thrums in your heart or your gut. But I don't know. I could be wrong on that. It just it was a little thing. It was a bump for me. But I thought this was a good beginning and an interesting start to, to whatever is coming next. Yeah, I thought so too. Um, the, uh, and I pretty much agree with Jody and Debbie. And I would even, one, one thing that I notice, and of course we don't really know for the rest of the novel if she's going to be the only view character, but if you're in a third person, you really don't need the self-reflexive what she heard, what, um, yeah, so she heard the thundering hooves. We, you can just give us the thundering hooves. Same thing with a quick glance. Some of that slowed the action for me, and just to give us bam, 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 the, um, the action, I think, um, is, is always better than, and, and phrases like, if anything happened, et cetera, et cetera. And then just, just have the brambles just, you know, just have her get trapped by them. Just have them snag. You know, they don't, they don't have to. You don't have to belabor that. And one more thing. Oh yeah, the fear thrumming. I, I marked that too. And even just mentioning a feeling. You, you know, what does fear feel like in your throat? And look for specifically like what that would feel like, not just the abstract noun of fear. Okay, I think that's it. Oh, can I add just one quick thing to that sure. comment on fear? I think that, that it's also true that this scene has set up the fear, and I'm not sure it needs to be called out that way. 
I think the, the sentence fragments do it, the urgency of running. I think we, we know she's scared. So I think, and I think that's the way a reader is more drawn to the, to the piece is just, you know, trust us, we see she's scared and, and we don't need to say where it is in her body at that moment. Right. It does, it does feel like maybe we're in a fairy tale world. I'm not exactly sure where we are, um, but it, it might be interesting. Um, I know there's an urgency to get in the first hundred words, everything that's happening, you know, or whatever, get to the action as soon as possible. But it might be kind of interesting to see Rena at this um, merchant's festival and maybe other people around her. I'm assuming it's a festival, so there's other merchants. Um, sort of who she is. Is she rushing to get ready get to leave because at dusk bad things happen? You know, kind of maybe spend a little time with her. That's just a, a an option if as they go back to revise to think about um, to put us into this world. I don't know if we're in the Middle Ages. I don't know if we're in, you know, on another planet. As you said, something to give us where we are and who she is maybe before she starts running. I, I might care more that she doesn't get caught. <laughs> right, right. I, I thought it might be interesting to know when, when she's handling the silts, if we could have a little, you know, how does she feel about the silts? Are these super important to her livelihood? And how can we feel that in like one quick phrase? Right. And do, maybe do you get beaten maybe, when you get home if the silks get right, stamped absolutely. on? Some stakes could enter just in how she feels about the silks. And we could get like the Merchants Festival. It could be the annual, you know, Gorgon Merchants Festival that you know, she's traveled hundreds of miles to get to it. Um, you know, they, they could be, you know, running, we could have a mention of where she's come from and, you know, where the other people have come from. Just little phrases that kind of pepper this with more specificity and a sense of the stakes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, let's move on to number five. I'm making a snowy owl out of paper mache. When Mr. Abel told us the white plumage helps them hide, I knew this was the bird for me. Plus, their parents keep on taking care of them even after they are able to fly, for ten weeks. In the life of an owl, that's a good long time. So here I am, shredding newspaper at the kitchen table, pasting stories about people, one on top of another. Sometimes the words bleed together, and I make it in my mind that strangers are meeting. Maybe they will meet in real life, too. I like this piece a lot. Um, uh, I think we might have seen it last year in a different format, so um, I like this revision of it. Um, one question I have is, what age is this written for? It, it feels a little bit like a young young adult piece. I'm not sure if that's what you mean. I, I would say, uh, from I make it in my mind, maybe I imagine rather than using those words. Uh, but maybe that's part of the style you want. Um, I, I feel like the, it, the beginning is intriguing. It flows well. I love the reference to the owl parents. And I like the image of the stories of people blending together and the possibility of them meeting in real life. So I would be interested to see where this heads. It seems like it could be in a couple of different directions, but to, it, it's intriguing for me. Yeah, I also, um, I loved I loved that this the way, this is a great example of how a writer can give um, feelings without saying, I'm a lonely person. Um, I just got the sense of a kid that maybe was a little, felt a little neglected, whether or not his parents are neglecting him, like 
sort of, you know, really connecting with this owl who gets taken care of a lot longer. And then this idea of the strangers meeting, I just got this sense of this loneliness, but this very unique individual without having to sort of have anyone say that specifically. And I really, I really love those details. I agree. I think that the details in this one are so specific and concrete that um, that there's not a moment in it where I wonder where I am or what we're doing there. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. There's just a lot of um, empathy for the character right away, whoever um, it is, and um, the plumage helping them hide the snowy owl. And that's why, so everything is very compactly stated. I have just a mild, mild preference for starting with the actual newspaper shredding because you, it's just so um, tactile and you can mm-hmm. hear the newspaper um, tearing and you can feel the glue on your hand. But I mean, that's a very minor uh, preference. It's, it's beautiful. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Number six. Isabel dragged her suitcase with one hand, clutched a bottle of Merlot in the other, and marched down the gravel drive to destroy the library. Halfway there, she stopped to shake the stones from her sandals. She had been aware of the rocky drive, but until today, it had felt like she was floating. Stupid. The stones had tried to warn her, and she'd ignored them. She glared at the lilies and gardenias so intoxicating before. They smelled heavily of deception. So much for Southern hospitality. No one had brought a chess pie or even said hello. There's so much good in this beginning. And one of the things that I that I noticed particularly were all the really good birds, dragging, clutching, marching, destroying, shaking, warning, ignoring, intoxicating. <laughs> um, and, and I, you know, but and I am intrigued where the idea that we're opening at this moment where this person who is arriving from somewhere with a suitcase in her hand or about to leave, um, but she has Merlot, so she must be arriving. Um, she's come to destroy the library. So already I'm very curious. I want to know what, what, what this is all about. Me too. Yeah, I really love those details. I just felt like I, I there might have been a, a little I felt that there wasn't really a focus to it which got me a little confused so we're destroying a library but now I'm in a garden and then we're talking about neighbors bringing things and maybe that's this character but I kind of wanted I didn't feel I was being propelled towards a library and I completely forgot about the library pretty quickly um so I know there's a sense of like all the things you notice um but I, I did want to know where are we going, and maybe that's the next paragraph. <laughs> I, I did. I did feel like um, like the line so much for Southern hospitality which, it was charming and really good with the voice. Uh, there were great lines, but it did make me feel like I could know just a shade more than I do about the circumstances at that point. So you know, up until that point, I felt like we might be, you know, the next thing I was expecting was a little bit of a more reveal, and I. I like the voice of that line, but again, I agree with uh, with Meredith that at that point there was a moment where I could have had just a little more glimpse of the world. I like the humor in this. Um, I love the destroy the library that instantly got my attention, although I, I did get a little bit confused by the next couple lines, especially a rocky drive. I think I read it as driving in a car uh so i thought rocky driveway would help um 
then um, the smelling heavily of deception. I thought that was just spectacular. I yeah. loved the image. I thought it was great. And I really, I liked the I didn't mind so much that it wandered. And I loved the uh, Southern hospitality paragraph. I thought that was pretty funny too. So I thought there was um, suspense and humor um, in, in these this, these hundred words that we got to see. Yeah, I agree. Um, and um, one uh, possibility that I thought of is because the bulk of it is so sensory um, that it would and the all of the sentences from halfway there um, until the end or even said hello you might think about moving the destroy the library until then like you know have her dragging her suitcase and so forth and then then put the um, destroy the library nice mm -hmm. contrast were, were you saying you would put destroy the library after the first paragraph betty joyce yeah uh-huh yeah mm -hmm. I think that um, this is just a great time to talk about voice, and um, I think that you know when it's hard to sort of explain voice, but you know when you read it, and I think this has a really strong voice and um, and a super strong character. Like I feel like we're reading about a, a, a character that's about to like spin out of control, and we're like, bring it. We want to see what happens next. <laughs> um, and so I think that that's always a really, really fun thing to read. I think a lot of agents and publishers look for strong voice because you feel like, oh, I'm in a storyteller's hands right now and they're going somewhere and they know where they're going. Um, and that, that, that can be really attractive. Yeah, I agree with Meredith, yeah, for sure. Me too. All right, number seven. The straw-colored braids floating on the river marked the silence as the swirling current carried her dingy white bonnet and screams downstream. Seconds earlier, Margareta Sattler's horrified hazel eyes had locked into Andreas Wagner just before her ducking stool plunged into the murky brown water. His hands clenched into fists as a knot of priests and magistrates' pleased looks and smirking faces stood off to the side. Tears etched streaks down his grimy face as he caught sight of the authorities studying him. Betrayed by the slightest hint of grief, they were on him in seconds. I think this was a, a great beginning in that it has spectacular images and wonderful descriptions and great verbs, but the construction is complicated. It took me a few readings to understand what was what. Um, and once again, I suggest that the writer starts either in Andreas's strong point of view or Margarita's strong point of view. For An Andreas, I would say Andreas Wagner saw uh, Margarita's eyes lock onto his just before her ducking school stool and head that way. Or if he starts with Margarita, say Margarita's horrified eyes locked onto Andreas. One way or another, I would organize this beautiful writing, really, into something that's more easily accessible uh, in a story format through somebody's point of view, depending on who his main character is going to be. It's probably going to be the guy. But anyway, um, I think this was good. I would just 
shift it so it's more clear. Well, I think it has to be the guy, Deb, just to just to clarify, because um, Margarita is right. now <laughs> downstream. Right. Maybe there was going to be some kind of switch to her point of view as she's downstream. I don't know. But no, I mean, right. we, can, we can join her later if she's going to survive her, her right. ducking. But if, if the next... <laughs> thing that happens is these guys are all going to grab him and somehow right. he's then we have to be in his point of view right and i suggest that that's where um, this author start yeah yes yeah yeah I, I agree there are lots of really good details here the straw colored braids floating on the river um and, and so on and so forth and i did want a little more sense of where we are so so what the ducking stool makes me think of you know carnivals where someone's sitting in a little uh, like booth with water and you're supposed to dump them into the water. So what I was confused by is somehow Andreas has done something to this stool that isn't in a little safe container but is on a river. So th there's something about these uh, conditions that's very disorienting. So I can't catch up with where the action is taking me. I'm assuming it's a witch trial. Right. Yes. Yeah. But I don't. I don't feel that I have enough information at this point to make a great determination about what's going on. I mean, okay. I so, feel like so the authorities guess... are dunking her, and somehow he's involved. But I, I don't know, and I don't need to know everything in the first hundred words. But I don't want to be really, really confused. I want to feel it unfolding. I would just say that the ducking stool didn't bring me to a witch trial. Um, because it can also be used in a carnival, and therefore, I think that there's a, a, a missing specificity that, it, which a phrase would cure. Yeah, I um, think you're totally you know, right. Yeah, because so that that's the problem. Because that can be used for fun and isn't dangerous. But it's um, not used in a river. <laughs> right, right. So, so I was just I was discombobulated. There, there's also a minor issue in that we have this uh the, the braids on the river marking the silence as sh the, the bonnet and her screams go downstream and the screams are obviously not silence so i thought it would probably be more active to say something more like the straw colored braids floated down the river um and just skip marking the silence altogether you know one of the things that this uh piece reminds me of in my own work and I think it's really common when you're starting out with a new piece, whether it's a short story or a novel, is to just load it up and to to try to cram as much stuff as you can into the opening, which often confuses readers and isn't really necessary. There's enough really great stuff in here to get a reader's attention, I think. Mm -hmm. Right, we talked about less is more. <laughs> one, one sentence I really love is the last one in this paragraph that the person submitted. Betrayed by the slightest hint of grief, they were on him in seconds. Because in that one sentence, we understand uh, the dynamic there. It was It's succinct and it's uh, very nicely done. I really like it a lot. Yeah, so he's right. for the next. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Awesome. Great. All right, number eight. From whereabouts unknown, Edwin C. Moses Boulevard snaked past, snaked along the Little Miami while my radio crackled with the usual holiday calls. The police issued sedan hugged the curb. Nearby, the water rushed cold and flat and gray. D. 
Dayton, Ohio, recently had a bout with rain and the river ran swollen. My arms felt it. My daily row had been three times harder than usual that morning fighting the current. Beside me, Detective Cody Michaels bit his fingernails. His knees bounced up and down so hard I wanted to reach over, quiet them. It happened to be my day to take care of the rookie. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm thinking we're in a police procedural. <laughs> I'll speak up as I'm the mystery person. <laughs> um, there's a couple of things that I thought were kind of unique about it. Um, and some things that I thought sounded a little stereotypical. And, um, and I would just say that when you're starting off in a genre like this, you'd want to really aim for the, um, the unique voice, because I think it can sound too much like every other police procedural. Um, so... I loved the putting it in the place. I loved that the river had run swollen, but I thought that kind of maybe contradicted the cold, flat grayness of the river. I, I grew up on a river, so I felt like rivers really change, and when they're swollen, they're going to be much rougher. So I thought yeah. that was a little bit of a contradictory there. Um, I loved that he was a, a rower, but he didn't say, hi, I'm a rower. He just said, he talked about his workout. Um, and then I don't think you necessarily look at the partner in your car and refer to them as Detective Cody Michaels. So I think that there might be a way to sort of do that without sort of uh, making it so formal and saying like, I have to introduce the person in the car next to me. But I loved, it happened to be my day to take care of the rookie because I just felt like everything was gonna go wrong after that. Yeah, <laughs> that was a great line. That was a great line. I think, the first line, uh, I like to look at this, but I think the first line, if you have Edward C. Moses Boulevard and Little Miami in the first line, and people don't instantly know what that means, I, I think it's not as much of uh, an engaging beginning as uh, you could have. Um, and I, I would rather start with the guy saying that his arms ached um, and then talk about Dayton's about a heavy rainfall and then talk about his daily rowing. So we're getting into that, that guy as he's, you know, driving along and then say something about the police issued sedan hug the curb. Um, I think I'd rather start with visuals and concrete details rather than two references that your readers may not know anything about. Yeah, I think that was true. I thought little Miami, I thought Miami. Um, and then I, but I should know because my mother-in-law went to Miami University <laughs> in Ohio. Um, so, but yeah, I also think you want to stay away from like generic stuff, like the usual holiday calls. Like we don't care about the usual ones. We want to know about the call you have to take the rookie on where everything goes south. Right, right. Even, even starting with the rookie, I mean, I wouldn't name him right away, but even starting with the rookie biting his nails. Uh, yeah. yeah. That yeah. would be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like what I wanted, there, again, this is one that has a lot of really great details right in the beginning that are all purposeful and, and I feel like they're the, they're good details to have. But again, I want it invested. I want the details invested with the uh, point of view characters' motivations and intentions. So I want to know, oh, great, it's my day to take care of the rookie. Or I've really been looking forward to working this out with so and so. Just give me some characterization of how he feels about uh, being stuck with or, or having this particular uh, responsibility. Um, the police issued sedan, I don't think that's the way a police officer would talk about their car. No. It would be 
are black and white or something. I mean, I don't know, but somebody would know. Um, and, and I think um, similarly, there are just places in there we can invest, you know, like who's driving? I assume because we have a rookie with us who's bouncing his knees and biting his fingernails, he's not driving. But I kind of want that sense of the, the character actually driving and, and just the physicality of it and the threat. When your arms hurt, <laughs> what does it feel like? <laughs> right. And that was a great detail. I agree. That was a great way with his arms feeling those the, the volume of water in the river. That was pretty cleverly done. Okay. Do we move? Mm-hmm. Okay. Number nine. Mom, I have to see the stars before I go to bed, Ryan yelled, running out the door. He missed Franco terribly and needed to go out one more time before school started. Gazing into the dark sky reminded him of his friend. The cold ground penetrated his down jacket quickly. He could smell the snow coming, but he was eager to to catch a glimpse of a shooting star. Sitting there alone, he remembered all the fun he and Franco had. Winter sledding, spring soccer games, trick-or-treating on Halloween, Ryan was Batman. Franco was a pirate. He recalled their summertime adventures from morning to night. So, Deb, you had... um, I do. You had connected with some member of our group who writes children's stories, and she was able to give a critique on this. Right. So I I contacted Jennifer Elfgren, who's always been a part of our group till maybe this year and she's uh, she writes children's picture books and middle grade books and um, uh, you know this is a great beginning for probably a middle grade book than a children's picture book here's what she says these days the sweet spot for a children's picture book is 500 words and not a whole lot of dialogue if you're going to use dialogue in a picture book that can't be the start and it needs to be spare we need to know right up front where Franco is, who Franco is and where he has gone and how Ryan is going to come to terms with that. Will he try to visit Franco? Will he have to find another way to communicate? Will he have to find another friend? If Franco has died, this would lean more toward a middle grade book. A picture book would read more like this. Okay, wherever Franco went, wherever Ryan went, Franco went too. Swimming, sledding, soccer, trick-or-treating, or just doing nothing. But Franco moved to France and Ryan was lonely. So this is the example of how spare a book, a children's picture book would be. The person who sent this entry in said she wanted this to be a children's picture book. So if you, she does still want to be a children's picture book, this is what Jennifer says. In terms of it being a middle grade book, maybe other people have some comments on it as a middle grade book. So there you have it. Well, I don't write middle grade books. Um, um, I, I think I liked, um, I, I did like the whole notion of, you know, trying to, you know, missing a friend and and wanting to connect to them. I, I thought, you know, I felt that emotion. I think it's a, a great thing to tap into for kids. Most kids do have a friend move away at some point and, and really miss them. So I think it, I think there was some really sweet things there. Um, I think my only question would be if other people have written middle grade books, getting into words like penetrated, um, you know, sort of, I I don't know if there's, there's rules on that in terms of what, you know, the size of the words. Yeah, I love the concept of 
meet uh, feeling close to your friend when you look into the deep space and star carpet. I think that is a really beautiful story for any age and however, whatever, obviously whatever techniques they have to use to reach the age they want to reach, this author is going to, um, you know, have a good, have a good story. Cool. All right. I'll move on to number 10. Try as he might, Nicholas Burdenworth could not forget the precise moment he learned that John the Baptist had four heads. The first greets pilgrims at Amiens Cathedral overlooking the River Somme. The second head is housed at a minor basilica in Rome. Another resides at a Bavarian palace in Munich, where a medieval duke collected bones of early saints. The final head is in a prayer hall of the Great Mosque of Damascus. Each institution claimed the one and only head, so to say there were four heads was only true for unbelievers or for those who could count. This beginning is, is humorous and clever at the same time. Um, and I, the details are great. The, the weird dilemma of how many heads John the Baptist could possibly have is pretty interesting. I guess I want to know, and I don't know that I need to know in the first hundred words, but I want to know pretty quickly how this character's relationship to those heads affects the story we're about to read. And if it doesn't, it's a sidebar. I wouldn't start there. So, um, <clears throat> you know, I'm assuming this is setting up some quest or another that Nicholas Burdenworth is on to either. Maybe he's going to go to all those places. Maybe he's going to try to find the real head. Maybe the head has some other metaphorical connection to some work that he's doing. But clearly there's, that's what I'm set up for. I'm set up for that whole story to be about that. So, um, which is, which is interesting. I would be interested in that. I, the, the only thing is because I don't have a hint yet what that would be. I can't be sure that's where it is going, which is fine. However, if that isn't where it's going, those first hundred words might want to be a subtext somewhere else rather than opening. Mm -hmm. I love that first line. I think it's terrific. And I would actually isolate it. I would make it a first line and start a new paragraph underneath. Um, <clears throat> the, the last line that uh, starts each, each institution claimed the one and only head, I would put a period there. And then I would say, so to say there were four heads, um, I would make that a new sentence. Although maybe it's just me, I don't understand the last sentence. I read it about 10 times and I'm not sure what it means, but it could be only me. Maybe you all understand what it means. I just- It was kind of a joke. <laughs> I guess I didn't get it. I'm so sorry. But anyway, if everybody else got it, then the audience, don't worry about it. <laughs> well, I don't know if I got it or not. I just assumed that um, it, that people who didn't believe in the Bible with a literal tr interpretation or something like that, um, uh, you know, that there was, for a true believer, there was only one head. I mean, that's how I interpreted it, oh, but okay. been correct. So, I, yeah, so just the fact that we're having this discussion, probably. Um, you might be able to rewrite it to make it a little clearer, I think, or, yeah. or, or, or as yeah. you said, divide it up a little bit. Well, and actually, as we were talking about it, I was thinking, and this is something that, that happens a lot when something is stated in the negative, sometimes it's clearer in the positive. I, maybe if we turn it to what would be true for believers, or... So each institution claimed the one and only head. So to say there were four heads was only 
problematic for believers or for those who could count. Oh yeah, that would that would have cleared it up for me. So there turning it yeah, turning it into the positive and getting rid of the negative un, of unbelievers um, mm. makes it clearer right away. I think. That's yeah. a good point. Excellent. I also feel like the next paragraph has to tell me about the precise moment and why that precise moment was important. I agree. I agree. Because, I, I mean, I think it's a funny detail that, to know this thing, but, I mean, it's kind of like if you add up all the pieces of um, Jesus' cross that everyone has, it would be this, you know, the size of a football field. <laughs> so right. clearly that doesn't work. So somebody's got pieces of, of, of um, you know, of... That you know that had nothing to do with Jesus, but who who is it? We don't know. So um, I you know so I just want to know. And also, I, it's sort of interesting when you formally give someone a middle name that way. It sort of sets up something interesting about their character for me. And I, I'd like to also know more about who Nicholas Burdenworth is. You know, and that brings yeah. up a really good point because names are really important in stories. You can get telegraph a lot of information by this name and this name is a weighty name it's, it's you know i could list like four or five things that i'm already assuming about this person based on this name just the fact one of those being the fact that he has a middle name that is actually worth mentioning is maybe he's he's rich or something so yeah just a, a burden yeah. worth it it's it's a burden i mean there's a lot of stuff in that name <laughs> yeah, burden and worth. yeah exactly yeah. and then nicholas not nick <laughs> so yeah yeah good name excellent uh number 11 i've heard it say that whatever doesn't kill you only makes you stronger but that's a lie truth is you're gonna die anyway nothing lasts forever alliances crumble people change and appearances can be deceiving for example close your eyes and compare the pattern of falling rain to a house fire sound familiar you bet only one's harmless as a lullaby while the other is a disaster Beatrice and I were like that. The disaster part. Married 20 years and stifled from the start. We were two opposing edges pulling against a brittle middle. Um, I thought this kind of came alive when we got to Beatrice. Mm-hmm. Um, I just felt before that I was getting a lot of um, just pat phrases and and then things that didn't seem to compare at all in my mind, like falling rain and a house fire to me don't sound the same so then I was lost on that whole thing so I almost felt like shorten that top and get right to the specific part of this relationship Um, because I loved the we were two opposing edges pulling against a brittle middle I thought that was a a great image I liked the voice that this one set up but really I felt like we were in this character's point of view which is something we've been talking about and a lot of the other ones. I felt like some of the metaphors kind of pulled us down garden paths we didn't need to go on. Um, and, and what my what my general sense of it is, is that, that this paragraph, the way it is, and, and you know, the, went a little further than, than what we shared. It was went a little beyond 100 words. But what I felt like it was setting us up is, here's where we are now. And my, my gut tells me that if we did away with that paragraph and jumped into the, to the story, which whatever was going to come next, we'd be right there in the immediacy and urgency of this story. And that that intro was something that the, that the writer needed to work to get into that, 
the mm-hmm. heart of the matter. Mm-hmm. But Joey, so, can you clarify? Can you say where you think the author should start? Do you think at Beatrice? Is that what you're telling me? Oh, no, I'm saying I, I think what this is telling us is Beatrice and I are having trouble. We're, I love the phrasing of it. I love the voice of it. But I think whatever the author is getting ready to tell us next, what's not included here, my gut is saying that's where the story starts. We yes. have a summary here. We have an introduction. We, we haven't really gotten to the heart of the matter. Although I believe the heart of the matter is in that riddle middle, and it's in that that marriage. But um, but I feel like we need the action that we are that this this um, paragraph is setting us up. And I would trust this voice to deliver that action without this preface. Is all I'm saying. I, I agree with that. I think the preface doesn't necessarily help. Uh, and I do agree that I what I love about this piece is that we are in this guy's head. I'm assuming it's a guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we are in his head really strongly, and that's the strength of it. I would get rid of anything that's cliched or that you've heard before. And I do like the brittle middle. There's a line that we didn't discuss right afterwards. Um, it was uh, over a hundred. <laughs> right, right, and that line had a bunch of um, things that didn't seem like analogies to me. I would I would just go for. Uh, the raw emotions and I agree with Jody about that's where the vibrance is going to come in and you're off to a good start because you are in this person's head so I can hear you in that person's head and not try to make a lot of comparisons or get real fancy Um, yeah yeah I agree you just bring up a great point about editing Debbie and and, and Jody I think um, which is I think there's a tendency for us to sort of muddle our way to a story and then it's really good in the revising process to figure out if you've started your story in the right place and we often do give a lot of backstory because we're learning about the characters we're like oh and he has a grandmother and she lives over here and and that's not actually relevant to the beginning of the story and there's ways to work that in later Um, but you want to get your people right in a place where they're hooked into the story and there's action happening and there's stuff at stake um, right. And so it's just good to check, do that check-in when you revise to see if you're starting where you need to. Um, number 12, Mount Auburn Hospital, Boston, 1954. I was almost certain I had cancer. A biopsy had been performed and my cells were injected with dye to make them easier to examine under a microscope. The dye helps the pathologist see membranes inside the colon cancer cells radiating out from the nucleus to the thick protective round cell walls. Dyed cancer cells look like orange slices, deadly orange slices capable of reproducing exponentially until they create a tumor that completely blocks the colon. I never expected I would have to sit this long in the waiting room. I was thankful no one recognized me. I love stories, uh, science stories, whether it's fiction or non-fiction. I love some some information in a story that teaches me stuff. And this one um, is is full of really interesting information. And behind the um, information we get, we see the um, you know is the the patient's uh, anxiety uh, looming. But I would um, start it with the deadly orange slices. It's just really uh, compelling. Well, not only are they going to teach you something, but we're going to have to learn how cancer was treated in 1954, which <laughs> right, right. Yeah. particularly colon cancer. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I I agree. The deadly orange slices were like the brightest point in in that 
paragraph and it really arrests the attention and I would want that to be fronted a little more. I also was really curious that we don't have very much information about this narrator other than that um, that they have cancer, but we also know at the end that they are thankful for their anonymity. So to me, that might not be the top five things I'm worried about when I'm waiting to hear tests back about about cancer. So so then I wonder, oh, who is this person in relation to where they are? Is it being in this doctor's office? Do they work there? Do they know other people there? Are they famous? Are they? What is it that makes anonymity the prime? Is mm -hmm. it because it's colon cancer, which in 1954 would be even more uncomfortable than than now? You know, I, I don't know. So I was curious how that would. Um, characterize the story going forward. Mm -hmm. So jumping in, in here on uh, Jody's point about knowing that I've, I've learned this in improv. It, it's so it's so much more compelling when you come on stage with a character that has a point of view and a feeling. And I think with this narrator, I think right up front, I would like to know how she is feeling about this. Maybe the uh, wanting to be anonymous up front or just I think I would be more engaged with knowing where her emotions are, um, uh, and then the sci then I would find the science more interesting. I like, I I agree with the uh, orange slice comment. That's visual, and uh, maybe start with that. But I also remember a, to get us more closely into what that person is feeling, not just thinking. Yeah, good point. Like, yeah. for example, I hope nobody recognizes me, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she might not want to start out, or he, or whoever this is, uh, with um, that. But to me, that would draw me in so much faster um, than can, the facts. We could see the character, you know, tilting the magazine they're reading uh, strategically to block their face from view. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. Yeah, and I don't know if, um, if yeah, I don't think you guys mentioned this either, but it seems like this person knows a lot about cancer for someone who maybe hasn't been given their diagnosis yet. I know a lot of people do a lot of research after they get diagnosed with something. So that would lead me to believe that they're somehow involved in the medical field. And if that is not the writer's intention, I would dial that back because we don't know. I mean, when they do a test, I don't think they say, we are going to... Um, uh, you know, inject your cells with dye to see them easier under the microscope. And then, especially back then, because doctors really didn't give a lot of information, I don't think. So, so I would, I would just wonder where, you know, if, unless a doctor is going to tell them this or something, you know, or maybe how, this person is a doctor. Yeah, exactly. That's my sense. But if you're, if they're, um, I don't know, Marilyn Monroe, <laughs> and they're glad no one recognizes them, then, then then, maybe they don't know so much about cancer. So just be careful of your point of view character somehow becoming omniscient. Right. Yeah. And if, if, if that information is there, if, if that is information the character has, we would want to learn it through their voice. So right. how did they come upon the information that the dye helps the pathologist see the membranes, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, how did they, how did, they get introduced to it and you know so it might make it more vivid if we're hearing that explanation from the doctor and we learn about who, it. and we learn about that character as well exactly okay uh number 13 a lazy rain drifted across the McAllister place without making a sound 
Neither bark of dog, caw of crow, nor neighing horse thought it proper to disturb this tender hour with the pursuit of food. As a token of respect, the machinery of time slowed to a crawl in honor of the old man's passing. Weakened by persistent fever that resisted ice baths and aspirin, Barnabas wept as the wizened face he knew so well shifted from pale to ethereal transparency of thin ice as his father's stormy life force emptied its broken vessel to flow elsewhere. I love the language. It's old-fashioned and elegiac and... Um, you know, there's a whole mood created there, which we haven't really talked that much about that either. But yeah, there's a, there's a mood. And um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we seem to be in a very rural setting. Um, you know, someone's place, you know, someone's called the place of their last name. And there's animals that are mentioned, um, and sort of the moment of death being really um, marked. Um, I think you can tell by the way I was reading, I got very lost in that last sentence. I felt um, sort of we talked about this earlier, um, that a sentence, you know, can be like a good soup. You don't want to throw too many spices in there and then you stop being able to taste the spice. So maybe taking some of those words out would help us really enjoy the words that they're using and the details that they have. Yeah. <clears throat> there's there's also a, 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 a grammatical issue there with the um, weakened by persistent fever is the the person who has died not barnabas yes yeah. the who's right. the uh, it's a misplaced modifier which which especially this early in a in, in a selection is jarring because i thought oh wait barnabas is sick too <laughs> that was my <laughs> my first reaction and then then i realized no 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 this is just a, a shifting um, I, I think that, that what this sets up is a story that, to me, the set of a story that was pastoral in nature, that was maybe set in like the 19th century or the, or the early 20th, um, it, it really felt um, gra rural and pastoral. And, and you know, the, the original submission included a little bit more than the 100 words, and it, it uh, I'm not sure that it continued to stay in what expectations it sets up in this uh, elegiac uh, pastoral um, genre, I guess. It, it, it's, I'm not sure if that's the, the mood that it means to have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, want, I wanted to mention again that I like the tone of this, but one of the downsides to that is lots of long sentences so that you're not varying the rhythm um, of the piece. And uh, I caught what um, Jody caught too about the misplaced modifier. And one thing to do there is to put in the words Barnabas wept, just those two words, and then weakened by a persistent fever that resisted ice baths and aspirin, um, then talk about his father so that you're varying the rhythm of the piece by including a couple of short sentences. And I think that would help with the complexity um, of, uh, and with the rhythm, anyway. 
And we didn't really talk about this, and I know we've been talking for a long time and we have one more to go, but I, I do think the first hundred words, just what you're implying, Jody, they really um, are setting us up for the book. And so um, it's all very good to be like, make them the most exciting hundred words of your life. But if then it, the whole book grinds to a halt and becomes another genre, then you're just, someone's just going to throw the book across the room or they're not going to buy it or they're not going to sign you, um, an agent's not going to sign you. So thinking about your hundred words as setting a tone for your book is super right. duper important. Where, where are we going with this? Who's the most important person in your story? What's the, what's the, what's the issue that's going to happen? What's the theme? Like how to hint at those things in the first hundred words and make them intriguing. It's not a small task, but I think it's super duper important. Agreed. Yeah. So, and I'm always, this is worth mentioning, I guess, but I'm always um, amazed at how many times, especially once the book or the story is finished, how many times you go back and rewrite that first page. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But waiting until you're done is, I think, really important because maybe you thought it was going to be X and it turned into Y. And that's fine. That's what part of writing is, is to explore, right? But then when you go back, you're like, at this beginning, it kind of was implying that, you know, something. I mean, if it were probably me, I'd be like, oh, yeah, the guy didn't die after all. I better take that out. (laughs) Um, But yeah. That's a a really good point there, Meredith. And I, I think bears repeating a little bit that, you know, here we are, on this panel talking about the first hundred words and how, and how they work. And, and you know, uh, it's important to remember that I agree they should be written last. We write something, we write our first hundred words when we sit down to start a manuscript, but we come back and they should be entirely rehashed, rewritten, reimagined when we have the whole of the story or the whole of the book uh, more embodied. Or reconsidered, I mean, not necessarily always you know, thrown out the door, but reconsidered to see if they match, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I would I would usually say that if, if the very, very beginning is exactly the same from the minute you set it down, probably it, it, that indicates something to, like a problem. You know, if, it, if there's no change in those first hundred words from beginning of draft to end of many drafts, and I think we do that. I mean, I, I think we get really attached to how we start a story because that is how it starts for us as writers. So, I I mean, I think it's something I challenge myself with, you know, when I get to the end of a million drafts of a story and it still starts in the same moment, sometimes it does still start in the same moment, but I have to ask myself about 50 times before I let that continue. That's true. I have a novel that I've written that probably has 12 different beginnings. Um, So you're right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's sort of the separation of our attachment to things that we write versus what serves our story is is really important. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we just have to end, have to say, does this, these first hundred words, do they serve our story the way we want our story, where we want our story to go and what we're trying to say? And if they don't, then you can revise them. And I always say, if those precious darlings that you have, those wonderful scenes that you wrote and you wrote and you wrote and you rewrote and they're amazingly beautiful, copy them and paste them into a Word doc and call them something and save them somewhere but they don't belong in your story if they don't belong in your story and you're gonna have to determine that eventually but um maybe you'll use them in something else (laughs) and it's 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 important to know that's a normal part of the process and that and that we you know um 
it's not wasted effort. We had to start somewhere. We had to get our first hundred words out. We, we want, we love the words that we put on the page. It's okay that sometimes they're not the ones we use, but lead us to the ones we need. Yes. Perfect. That's really, really smart. Well, let's finish off with our last number, lucky 14. Um, <laughs> the landing craft was a white dot and a sea of red dust. On the screen, its shadow was a tiny dark smudge. The image revealed nothing unusual, no abnormality or evidence of the damage that now threatened the lives of two brave astronauts. They were inside, working furiously but methodically to revive their dying machine. As he waited, Tyler could do nothing but offer them encouragement. The repair and rescue options that involved him and the orbiter had already been exhausted, and he was simply an observer now. Over the course of three agonizing days, teams of engineers and technicians had analyzed an endless stream of data that arrived from 65 million kilometers away. Um, so at first, so I, I, I get where we are, I get Tyler's on our Earth and their astronauts out, so, but I, um, I was having a little issue with the point of view. Mm -hmm. Me too. Yeah, <clears throat> agreed. And it and might again, be, we have, yeah, it might oh, be sorry. just a re redoing of the structure a little bit, maybe. Right, right. Like an ordering of what's being revealed. Mm -hmm. So, like, I want Tyler right at the beginning. Although I have to say, I really like that that the landing craft was a white dot and a sea of red dust. That's a beautiful line. Yeah. Um. So, so I I, I appreciate that, and I and I and, and there's a little mystery of it. Maybe that is the beginning. But but I need Tyler seeing that. And I was wondering if it made sense to start. So it, it says the repair and rescue options that involved Tim and the orbiter had already been exhausted and he was now just an observer. So I'm wondering what if we started in that last moment where Tyler and this repair and rescue option or whatever was still active so that as this story is opening, the reader is seeing the main character lose the ability to help this other, these quote, brave astronauts that we don't know um, yes then we have the investment in the danger we have the investment in how this character is what role the character plays in it um right now we have brave astronauts working furiously but methodically and to me those those are abstract and a little bit sentimental if we had tyler connected to that and he knows these astronauts by name probably if he's working that closely on the mission so making it more personal, more deeply specific, right from the second that it starts, I think would would boost this a lot. And it, it, there's a lot of good stuff in there. Um, and, I, and I think there's some really beautiful lines, good writing. So I, I just wanted to be maybe a little crisper to pull us into the exact. Yeah. I agree. I think that I'm, the first line I could would see keeping the landing class craft was a white dot and a sea of red dust. But then I would immediately go to action and dialogue. And I think Jody's suggestion of where to start is great. Um, and start with Tyler as your point of view character. And that way the reader just feels the anguish instead of hears the, the narrator telling about it. The other thing I would do <clears throat> and, uh, is to go through and use active verbs everywhere you can get rid of uh, was and were. Like uh, you could have and the word be glimmered or whatever but get rid of was and were all the way throughout because it doesn't it doesn't really further your your writing your messages um i mean uh, um, it doesn't add to your piece um but in in general i, I think it's a great great beginning um and I, I like it a lot yeah the setup is compelling it's um 
and this narrative, um, the report-like um, format doesn't really do it justice, the moment that you're setting up the story. Right. Um, I think you just, I also just want to, to mention, you want to be really careful about setting up a story where your main character is basically impotent and can do nothing. Um, because that really will set up kind of a boring situation where a lot of people will say, why isn't our main character one of the astronauts who's working furiously on the landing craft? Why are we sitting on Earth staring at a screen and going, oh, I wish three days, <laughs> the three days hadn't happened this way. So I think your point is really good. Let's set up a scene where even, I mean, if even that's, we may end up in that place where our character is like, I've done everything and now I've lost these people and we feel that anguish. But let's see him actually doing some stuff first. Mm-hmm. Because I think that's how you learn about a character. That's how we care about a character. That creates our story and our plot. It's someone trying to do something as opposed to just saying, oh, we're done. <laughs> right. So maybe this is just your intro and now we're going to go back in time and be like, you know, Thursday, 10.01 at Houston, yeah, I in Houston. Yeah, I wonder if it is. I wonder if it is. But, but I, you know, I just think, maybe think a little bit about that when you start it, like how that's going to happen. Because you've given it away. I mean, maybe it's a true story. Maybe we're, maybe it's a nonfiction, but it's supposed to be fiction. Um, but, you know, I'm a sucker for those, those stories where they're on the ground and they're trying to save people. And Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. oh, God, it gets me every time. It's like, oh, they come back, you know. So I, I really, I, I really want to, I really want to be in that world and I want to see what happens. So I'm rooting for them. So, well, thank you guys. I know we went over, but we always do because we have always so much to say. Um, <laughs> and um, I miss seeing you guys. And yeah. I'm sorry we couldn't meet any of the writers in person this year, and um, but I will definitely post this and encourage people to um, go to vabook.org um, and you know contribute to the festival so that it can happen again next year. I hope that, that the feedback gets you right back into the writing and come and see us next year. Good submissions. Thank you. Yes, thanks a lot. <laughs>